Welcome to the Mwango Capital Podcast. At Mwango Capital, we aggregate uh, key information on African capital markets through Twitter, Telegram, and our weekly newsletter called The Baobab. We also hold weekly discussions every Friday on topical issues on African capital markets, and we also engage in analysis and research and training. We look forward to another engaging conversation on our Twitter spaces. Uh, So join us there every Friday so that we can keep having quality conversations on African capital markets. Without further ado, welcome to today's conversation. Thank you very much for joining us this Friday evening. We are privileged to have the CEO of I&M Bank Kenya. Uh, so maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, thumbnail sketch of your life so far. Uh, sure. Let me start with the important thing. I'm a married man, married to one Kezia, and we have two children. And in terms of my background, yes, I've been a banker for a long time. Started off with Stanbic Bank, actually, back when it was called uh, Greenlays. And those were the handy days, actually, when uh, we were getting liberalization happening, interest rate markets. It was a bit surprising to see very recently that we were getting back into interest rate control, foreign exchange markets as well being liberalized. And then I joined Barclays back in 97, again with the Treasury Department, ended up as a regional treasurer. Started about 2004, stopped about 2010, when I joined Barclays Bank in Tanzania as the MD and stayed in Tanzania for about seven years, joined I&M, where I am now, in uh, 2016. Training-wise, yes, you mentioned Chicago Booth. I I did my executive MBA, finished, I think, in 2009. Uh, Great school, and shows that you have a sound grounding in in finance. Has a very good house view of economics, and they apply everything, even to HR. They'll apply economics to uh, as the lens through which to look at the world. And uh, yes, so that's a bit about me. Tell us a bit about Chicago Booth. I know uh, there is where the efficient markets hypothesis is. Do you believe <laughs> markets are efficient? It's a point school, so they do believe that markets are efficient, right? Yes, that's that's true. You have you have some of the best guys there from French and uh, Kenneth. Exactly, and and it obviously informs uh, a lot of the thinking. Then it's it's actually called Chicago Booth. Uh, it was actually renamed when I was there after David Booth, who through his company and having been taught by Farmer, for example, then put a lot of those theories to to the test and actually has uh, created a very valuable company and ended up endowing the school with, I think it was a gift of $300 million at the time. And for that, got an, uh, the name Booth attached to Chicago. So it, does it work? I think that suggests that it does work. And you could say that the pursuit of knowledge is obviously not going to stop. You are going to keep on seeing refinements of, of theory to try and get a better understanding of how the world works, how the markets work. And I think Chicago does a great job of that. So if we look back at that time in Chicago, then like what, what things that have shaped your life did you pick up from the school? I think my biggest revelation at the time was the relatively new area of behavioral economics. And it was good to see Richard Thaler, actually, who was pushing for that particular discipline 
And uh, I remember actually our commencement speech was also given by the guy who wrote uh, Freakonomics. And clearly behavioral economics was coming to, to the fore. And this is something that has then found application in very many different areas of our markets and um, is helping us make better decisions. So it was actually gratifying to see Richard Tiller then get the Nobel Prize uh, for economics on that particular topic. So yes, that would be a great takeaway. And I think of how we actually behave in our markets as, as we actually serve our customers. Surprisingly, I was there actually when Richard Taylor was receiving the Nobel Prize in 2017. Oh, excellent. I was at the Stockholm School of Economics and he gave this speech about, you know, I think these days he's into nudges, like small tweaks yeah. that you can do to make people, I think one of the coolest ones I've seen, I think is a really nice box that they put somewhere in Stockholm where they try to encourage people once you've smoked and you left a cigar, but you don't throw them to the ground. They have a really nice, especially colored place where you can put it. Uh, those are kind of nudges that I've seen. But for yourself now, do you apply that maybe to your executive management and maybe uh, in the markets yourself? Do you see that practically applied, especially in terms of behavioral finance and behavioral economics? Any yes, actually, yes. Uh, you obviously recall Richard Taylor's uh, book, Nudges. Some simple things, everyday things, maybe to just uh, name a couple that I recollect from the book. If you're trying to lose weight, you want to nudge yourself to eat less, right? So don't have big plates out there at the serving table. Have small plates. A full small plate is going to control <laughs> how much you eat, right? A second one was how to make people uh, make better decisions. Actually, and this is some of the things that have been studied in, on hard movements, if you like, in the markets, right? If left to themselves, don't generally make good decisions. So if you, for example, try and get people to choose what's best for them with a pension plan, right? If they are told to select between different choices, sometimes they'll actually leave without making a selection. So you have to create a default and the default ought to be the best kind of solution, really middle solution, if you like, so that if it's left unchecked, it actually defaults to that. So this then has applications in the way we, we actually work. When we are giving our customers choices, we want to make sure that the default selection is something that they would be happy to live with if they looked back and said, okay, but I didn't check that. So whether you're opening an account and whether you want to, to have certain choices available to you, features in the, in the account and so on. And this is particularly important uh, in, in um, this world where you have a lot of people who might take advantage of others as they uh, use their products. So you have to uh, apply the integrity you have as an organization, but also use some of these smart ways on choice theory to really help uh, customers make the right choices. It's really nice that you talk about all this kind of like uh, decision-making kind of informed more by also academic research. I, I, read, I read Richard Taylor's book. I think, uh, I can't remember the name exactly, but it's one of those that he wrote his story about. I, I remember that when he went to get his PhD, his professor said that we make a mistake once every so often. So let's make a mistake of making him a PhD student and give him the award. And then later yeah. in life, he goes on like to win. Uh, so I think, I mean, you're under VAR, but later you come out very strong in the end. I think So there's a lot that you learn, especially from Richard Taylor. He struggled to make sure that uh, behavioral economics kind of gets accepted because, you know, economics has been very, meant to be very uh, homo economicus, you know, like 
uh, it has to be rational and all this. Uh, but now he has made it a bit more humane and human at the end of the day. So I have a quick yes. question for you. Maybe I would ask, why is it that you don't see maybe those kind of philanthropy that maybe go into making Chicago booth? Why are there not uh, many of those, let's say, in the University of Nairobi, say, our business school there, so someone can also give a big donation to keep the schools going? Yeah, that's an interesting one. We uh, wait for you. We call we it the Kihara be, Maina Business School. <laughs> I think we have to be purposeful. I think um, locally we have seen a good shift towards the link between academia and industry, particularly at places like Strathmore. And I think it was purposefully designed. You know, they went to a lot of trouble to link in Gibbs in South Africa. Uh, they had visiting lecturers from leading universities around the world. And what this will drive is, shall we say, engaged alumni, right, who then feel that actually uh, I benefited from this, I can give back, right? Personally, I've only seen it, and I know I'll get a lot of stick about this, but at the moment, we only tend to see it at high school level. So when you connect with your old school, like I do with Alliance High School, you want to make sure that because it was such a seminal experience for you in shaping who you are, that that opportunity is given to people who are going through the school now. So you see that connection at high school level, very rarely in Kenya at, at, um, at university level. And it's something that they have to continue working on. And I th suppose it also comes with time, right? The older the institution and the more engaged they are with, with their alumni, the more you will probably see naming gifts coming. Yeah, that's true. And I, I agree in the sense that I actually have not really gone back to my business school um, 10 years later. So I think I'm guilty in that regard. I should also go back and invest more the business school so perhaps like a few more maybe question also would be like what uh maybe is there like some some stories that have shaped you that you'd want to share along the ways that can also be a source of inspiration to young uh people who are starting out their profession so maybe a point at which maybe you got your breakthrough into banking and what made you maybe choose banking as a career well i actually started out uh, i studied maths and uh, physics in maths and statistics and physics in, in university and my bent was actually a, a bigger focus on ICT. Um, I'm that old that the uh, PC was actually becoming popular around the time that we were in university. And I actually did start out with a small farm doing a bit of programming. And, and, but then got uh, the opportunity to join Stanwick as a management trade. And even then, my thinking was I'll be more focused on the operation side. I can apply computing knowledge and all. But as I guess fate would have it, that was the time that the markets were liberalizing and uh, the interest in, in the, the way the financial markets work, treasuries were being set up, remember, in the days of control. Essentially, you know, everybody depended on the central bank for guidance. And uh, as the treasuries were setting up, I got the opportunity then to join the, the new look treasury. And that set me off now. There's a great place for you to understand banking. It's a treasury. It sits right across the intersection of all the different businesses that you'd have in a bank. And so that's how I got onto it. Now, what would that mean in terms of how my particular journey may inspire others? In a sense, you get to always interact with fast-moving markets, fast with, with a lot of change that's happening. 
nothing's really ever static in, in your markets. There's always a lot of opportunity for innovation. But there are also some significant challenges you face when developing new areas, right? You have to deal with your desire for change being sometimes held back by the caution that regulators must exercise, right? And it teaches you the, that you must negotiate, you must, you must inform so that you can actually help the markets grow. And that takes a lot of patience. It also teaches you about how demand and supply works, actually, because if you're moving in a whole new area at the time, skills are are scarce, like we're seeing right now in the push for digital across uh, different industries. You're going to see a significant surge in demand for, uh, for very scarce skills. And you have to learn how to manage all of those. So some interesting things there. That's a good point to also ask the question, like if you look at the young graduates who are coming maybe into your bank and working with you, our young students out there, what would you like tell them, those who are starting out in their field, what do you see that you wish you knew when you're coming into the banking industry yourself? Well, I think we have seen organizations like banks become a melting pot of different skill sets, different experience. So you will find that you have a lot of people who work in a bank, not necessarily bankers, right? You bring a a lot of of different skills to bear, right? Your procurement guys are not going to necessarily be bankers, right? What you will always have is the opportunity to learn. And across different teams that we have in the organization, if you want to be well-rounded, take the opportunity to actually spend time in different departments and see how they work. Don't be so monoline that uh, you don't actually get a sense of what's going on around the bank, right? And seize those opportunities. Sometimes don't um, hesitate to move laterally, move even diagonally downwards to uh, be able to get the experiences that that you need because they will come to help you later on as you uh, take on more, more demanding tasks. So the other thing is to obviously exercise patience. You're not going to drive the, 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 the car that the chairman drives uh, and you've just joined. It takes time, uh, it takes uh, patience, really. And uh, at the same time, you also have to appreciate that uh, some of the things that you perhaps aspire to right now may not necessarily be quite that important for you down the line. So you require to reflect, let me say. Brilliant stuff. I think uh, a lot of us growing up, what the Markbank is a big building at the city center. So, <laughs> so I think this is a good point to venture into the business itself and just tell us a little bit about I&M Bank and especially I want to focus on the business model and what makes you different from the other 40 plus banks and maybe other microfinance institutions that you have around. What's your history and legacy and the business model there? We are actually a very, a relatively old institution. We're actually about 45 years old, which always surprises people when they hear that. But um, origins are actually outside banking, closed in finance and investment, and eventually turned into a commercial uh, bank around the time that I think the arbitrage opportunities that uh, existed back then between commercial banks and financial institutions who were removed by the central bank. And that then allowed the the bank to leverage its close relationships with uh, different communities to really kick off banking operation. 
Now, a lot of organic growth, obviously, in there for, that you can then do from the, the perspective of a relationship-driven uh, model. But then you, for you to really scale, you have to then think about how you're going to finance your business with partners, whether it's on, on an equity basis. So INM was an early, an early partner with the development finance institutions like DEG and Propaco, both of which are owned by European governments, DEG by the German government and Propaco by the French government, who injected capital into, into the business. But more than capital actually provided assistance, technical assistance that was particularly focused on driving the resilience of the organization. So putting in place the right kind of corporate governance frameworks, putting in place the right kind of systems and practices like anti-money laundering and so on. So if you combine those with your founding vision to be partners of growth for our clients, that's, that's actually our purpose. And uh, a focus on our values around innovation, integrity, mutual trust, that uh, and fairness, that uh, combines very well to then say, okay, so how do we actually build a business that's fundamentally driven by trust, right? And that's what banking really is. So we've then applied M&A, of course, uh, a lot in our business. So our earliest acquisition being Biashara Bank back, I think, in 2002, which uh, made us a slightly bigger bank. That then allowed us to increase our customer base, drive some common synergies that we had. And then, of course, uh, on the back of the growth that we saw uh, post-2003 in Kenya, uh, defining our appetite very clearly in different segments, the real estate space, supporting our clients getting to the real estate space in manufacturing, and strengthening our balance sheet through further capital injections and in particular getting foreign currency funding as well to support a lot of the need for foreign currency financing that we were seeing in the corporate space helped us to then build out our business. Now, if we were then to now look at what our business model really focuses on, so you will hear that I've really been talking about how we put our customer at the center of everything we do. Now, the shift that we have seen in recent times has been really how to leverage technology strongly to truly drive that customer-centric approach to our business. And our digital strategy focuses exactly on that. So how do we actually put in place the assets that we need, the digital assets that we need to get better insights on our customers so that we can actually give them the better solutions that they require? And also use that to really drive the cost efficiencies that we need in this day and time. A lot of the battlefront in the banking space right now is really on cost, right? How do you uh, reduce your cost to serve? So we have our Imara strategy really focuses on, on that and making sure that we are designing our solutions for our customers, making sure that we are really thinking about the whole customer, not just pushing product, but actually thinking about all the different solutions that our different customers in the segments that we serve actually need. Good stuff. So there's a nice compliment here I should uh, read to you from someone who just DM'd me that said that you're the best professional in banking and he, he remembers you from the days at Barclays where you volunteer to teach people on repos. Kind <laughs> regards. <laughs> Thanks. 
Okay. So uh, maybe switching gears a little bit, you you've talked a lot about M and A, right? Uh, so you've done a lot of some. You said about Biashara Bank. Uh, so I wanted to see how do you usually think through some of the acquisitions you make. Like what attracts you to another bank? The last time I checked, you have an asset base of around three hundred and five billion. Uh, it's quite big. I mean, a couple of that could be through acquisitions, and, and others could be just growth, uh, organic growth. But how do you think about the balance between that and how do you think about your M&A? How do you go about it usually? And what does your typical M&A transaction look like? Well, so at the end of the day, what, what you're looking for are complementarities, right? And you want to see what add-ons you will get by acquiring a particular business now. So, of course, the ones that are geographical in nature, which actually make up a lot of the M&A that we have done in the past, are about getting into geographies where our customers ready, present or looking to get into and are looking for a partner that they're familiar with. So a recent transaction that we did in, in Uganda is a case in point. We have been looking to get into Uganda for a while and that's finally happened. It allows us to really support our customers across all the different geographies in which we now uh, operate. So yes, complementarities. Are we going to see any challenges in integrating those businesses? We need to understand those. Uh, is there value that we can actually give the customers that we are getting uh, through that acquisition? So if you think back to 2017, when we concluded the transaction with, with Gyro, it's exactly that. Our, our acquisition of, of Gyro allowed us to offer, number one, larger balance sheets so that we're able to give customers who are looking to grow the opportunity for larger ticket sizes on their loans, for example, but also a range of transaction platforms that previously they did not have, right? Access to the ATM networks, access to internet banking and mobile banking and so on. And of course, it also gives us an opportunity to grow our balance sheet particularly through the, the deposit base that comes along with an acquisition. You will notice, of course, that we don't get into markets, if we can help it, through a greenfield operation. We prefer actually acquiring a business that already exists. It has customers, it has a balance sheet, and some serious opportunities for us to actually add value. Good. So maybe then you could talk a little bit about uh, like how, especially an M&A transaction, how do you go about it? I mean, it's not like, a bank is on the shelf somewhere and then you go and say, I want that one. So like, how do you get started on relationships? Because you say you're following your customers where they're going. So if they're going to Uganda, then you want to be in Uganda to help them there. Yeah. So so how do you think about, like, how do you start on a name and a transaction and how do you complete it and then integrate it into maybe the culture of A&M at the end of the day? Right. So... Obviously, there are different approaches that you can take. Some, sometimes you will be approached, right? Because the potential, shall we say, seller has seen that you do have the appetite for Mendei. So they could actually approach you and say, we think there's a fit here. Can we consider this? That's sort of the reactive approach. You would also get the same thing happening, of course, with potential deal makers who will look at these opportunities and say, okay, can I put together something? So you will get that. And we typically will put out the message that we are interested in particular areas. So that allows the world, if you like, to 
you know, congregate towards what you're, you're looking for, right? So that way people present opportunities to you. But then there's the proactive approach. And if we want to be in a particular market, we will look at uh, potential candidates and say, okay, do we see a fit um, with any one of them? And can we make the approaches that are, are required to the ones that uh, we think can listen? So at a very high level, those are the approaches that you're going to be taking. Of course, there's a lot of analysis that, that would then go into uh, potential uh, candidates to see, do we have a cultural fit? Do we have uh, any, and culture could be very, very wide ranging here because it, it, you'd look at the vision that they have, the markets that they serve, the ethos that they We don't want to have challenges, obviously, partnering with somebody who ends up having issues with, with the regulators and so on. So a lot of that is well considered. Then, of course, there's the opportunity to acquire it at a price point that makes sense, right? Of course, if you see the value, uh, in, in that partnership, you will eventually get to a price that, that works. That can be a, a bit of an, a, a science and an art as well to get to the right valuation and methodologies. But if you are agreed on the broad principles uh, for why the merger needs to happen, then you typically will not fall apart on price. A quick question maybe on that, because in the past couple of days, I think we've seen one deal where uh, you buy and then later you find out that the house that you bought is uh, is one that is made of uh, made of uh, house paper or something like that so have you how do you safeguard against that and then also do you have like an in-house m and a team or are you outsourcing most of the functions uh, when you do m and a so uh, the way to make sure that you are actually buying what you thought you were getting is obviously the due diligence process right even before you get into the depth of, of the due diligence, you have your preliminary due diligence that you will do. Uh, like I was describing earlier, is this even worth starting a conversation on? But once you're past that stage, then now you can get into the depth of due diligence. Now, we do have an in-house M&A uh, team, and they will coordinate the work that needs to be done with different partners that we engage for that purpose. For example, if it's a legal due diligence, while we will involve our legal teams, we will actually also work with legal firms that are more experienced and and practiced in in this area so that we can get the right focus on that particular area. If it's on the credit side, obviously we know a lot about credit. We will also see if we do need to, to get any outside that we bring in as well. There's the finance, the tax, and so on. So you put together a team, a deal team, that is then going to look at uh, the details on the M&A side. And uh, you shouldn't uh, feel shy to get the best uh, people to, to do that for you, right? Because it could save you a lot of pain down the line. Uh, so now moving quickly, at least to the latest news in the market, is that uh, you are the co-manager of the new Eurobond. I'm not so sure how much you can speak about it, but like, how did you get that deal? And what can you tell us? Right. So yes, indeed, the announcement now is out and we can share a bit more about what that is now. So typically your Eurobonds have been done, obviously, by your lead arrangers that are uh, experienced in, in the international markets issuance, Right. 
And um, so one of the things that the local regulators have been keen to do is to see how you can also build local capacity. So they asked this time around for any of the bidders to have local partners as well, right? So, of course, the process then began to, with everybody who was bidding to build, well, to have one local partner per bidder to, uh, that they felt was going to uh, actually add value to them in the process and, and so on. So we got approached by one of them, and our combined bid to provide uh, this particular service was accepted. So that's how we ended up becoming a co-manager. It has a, a significant element of knowledge transfer, and it helps us down the line to be able to actually offer sim- similar advice to our local government, but also in deals that we might get into down the line uh, across the region. Yeah, I know like with banking experience comes uh, very handy if you're going to be dealing with similar transactions along the line. Yeah, is this your first Eurobond? And also, can Kenyans invest in this? Would we expect it also to be traded locally at some point? And what does a co-manager actually do? Are you like managing the process and directing everyone what to do? Or what do you exactly does a co-manager do here? So, so as I said, a lot of it is actually focused on knowledge transfer. So the heavy lifting is going to be done by what you call the lead arrangers, but you're then involved in every step of the process. You're going to give your input on documentation, whether it is the information of documents that, that you put out, what kind of design should be put into the roadshows, we attend the roadshows, and so on. Then, of course, there's the selling side, and even that um, is where well, we obviously are getting involved in. The book building is obviously run by the joint leader rangers, but obviously there is also the opportunity for anybody outside Kenya, in particular, it's an international bond at the the end of the day, to express their interest through us, right? And through our network, for example, with Mauritius and all, we are able to to collate any of the interest that we get in the Eurobond and and, um, direct it to, to the book building process. You asked whether uh, Kenyans can invest. So uh, the offer is not actually open to Kenyan investors in, in the sense that it's not open in the primary to Kenyan investors. You can eventually trade in the Eurobond in the secondary market. That's sad because we have been uh, trying to get our money together so that we can support the government in this regard. Uh, so, uh, but if you want to maybe speak a little bit about, I think this is a good segue into JP Morgan. Uh, some questions I had here, JP Morgan. So JP Morgan has been uh, on record, especially the CEO. Uh, I read earnings call transcripts, so I follow him a lot. Uh, so one of the things he's been saying is that he's very afraid of fintech companies, uh, very, very scared and how they, I mean, can maybe use uh, their asset light approach to be able to deliver uh service at lower costs and then of course get the proper margins there and also the valuations at which they trade and all so i know you have a background in data and 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 all this so what's the approach that your bank is taking in terms of uh, digital and would you maybe at some point be thinking of maybe making an acquisition in this fintech uh, companies or so so the fear that uh, Jamie Dimon expresses with respect to fintechs, uh, I think has a lot more to do with 
the challenges of valuation that may come from sometimes what you'd call irrational euphoria, right? And I think you saw this with the internet bubble back in the day. And you therefore do have to be careful. I mean, you, we've seen the kind of swings that have accompanied cryptocurrency, for example, and sentiments could be expressed one day that blow out the next day, right? But I look at fintechs differently. Um, I'm not really interested necessarily in their valuation. I'm more interested in what they actually can do, right? And from our perspective, in terms of our digital strategy, we actually look at the opportunity to partner with fintechs, right? So we know that we can't build everything ourselves, right? It's not practical. So what we do is think about how we can work with fintechs to actually deliver solutions for our clients. So that, however, then means that we also have to be careful about who we actually partner with, right? Uh, Who are these strategic partners? What kind of risk do they introduce to us? We don't want a situation where we've gone and signed up on a particular platform that is driven by a fintech, which then goes bust and so on. So it needs to, we still need to do our due diligence on the sustainability of, of a particular partner. But they present a really good way to foster innovation in any organization. You have to be careful that you're not uh, spending too much time, I think, with fintechs that haven't developed what they actually want to do. They're coming to you with an idea and hoping you'll fund them and they're thinking about you know, a, a big upside down the line. But actually, you're partnering with people who already have uh, a proven concept and are looking for a partner that can actually drive value for, for customers. So that's really the thinking I have around fintechs. And, and you have a wide range, obviously. You've got local fintechs. You've also got international fintechs, right? You just want to make sure that you have a good filter to say, who do you actually work with? So in doing research for this chat we are going to, to have, I, I found out there's a product in uh, I&M Bank has in Rwanda called Spen, which actually is built on blockchain technology. I was pretty impressed because uh, I think it says I&M Bank has launched a new savings account through its digital product Spen, no fees, unlimited withdrawals, 4% annual interest, and it's trying to become the leading savings offering in Rwanda. Do you, do you have much to say, more, more to elaborate on that? Because uh, it, it's built on blockchain and I haven't seen like many banks, uh, especially in Africa, which are keen on blockchain. So is this something that you would uh, likely see in Kenya at some point? So yes, it is a, a great uh, partnership we have with SPEN and we rolled it out in Rwanda. We've also rolled it out actually in Tanzania and also have also been looking at how best to do it in Kenya. And it is powerful technology. It gives you the opportunity actually to really reduce uh, the costs of serving clients through a platform like this. So, of course, we've got challenges with adoption of these technologies, these new technologies in different markets. As remember, blockchain is what uh, cryptocurrency is built on. And cryptocurrency kind of got a bad name very early on. So you tend to have a lot of caution around blockchain and what controls you must put in place. And I think it has a great uh, future. We've seen applications on on blockchain elsewhere that would be very apt for even our industry. So if you think about our land registries, 
and uh, the challenges that we have around integrity with titles and so on, great applications. So I think from the perspective of working as a payment platform, reducing the costs of transaction and so on, there's certainly a great future there. Great. And when I read a lot about, you seem to be doing a lot of innovation in Rwanda. There's contactless ATMs and instant card issues there. Why don't we have it in the headquarters here in, in Kenya? Is it, is it like you try out in a smaller market and then if it works, uh, and also like you can maybe speak about what has been the adoption rate along that digital product like Spain in Rwanda and what, what's the traction so far? Well, so we have got quite a lot actually happening at the same time. So we don't necessarily try out anything in a smaller market and then put it across and on. In fact, I'd say quite a, a lot of the changes that we make in our platforms tend to, to happen here in Kenya and then tend to get rolled out across. And the reason is simply that we're trying to make sure that we have a lot of attention paid to cost management because you want to do these things once and replicate several times. So some of the markets, however, are a bit ahead in terms of the approval process you have for new technologies. So it becomes easier to just switch it on uh, there. But that capability is also uh, available here in Kenya as well. Sorry, just quickly remind me the second part of that question. I think digital lending and this kind of products that we're seeing there, uh, I mean, just are they coming here soon? Uh, Yes. So uh, I think in Tanzania, you have Camelisha, right? Yes, exactly. And yes, we are, we are from that perspective, looking at markets that perhaps are uh, not as deeply penetrated by some of these solutions and trying out some of these, the, the innovations that we have put in place. But of course, they can then scale. And we want to be able to replicate that in markets like ours here in Kenya. Now, I think one of the statistics I saw the other day was that you have somewhere in the region of 650 digital lenders, right? So, but if you are tasked to actually name them, you probably wouldn't be able to go past five or six, right? That, that's popular. So we always come at it from the perspective of, is it actually something that the customer needs, right? Remember, at the end of the day, the customer is looking for a solution for something. They don't go and say, I want a mortgage. Actually, what they want is a house, right? So it's you who then designs a solution for them. Similarly, they may be looking to smooth some of their concerns and they want to take a, a personal loan. Uh, and they want to do it as seamlessly and quickly as, as possible, which is what digital then, then offers. So as we get into the personal banking space as I&M, we are obviously looking at how we can leverage the power of digital to actually do that. And should we make it mass market offerings, we want to make sure that it is something that our customers will feel yes, it's actually differentiated for me and I'm getting value from this platform. So maybe a question also that has come through is about uh, those in diaspora. Are you keen on them? Because if you're quite huge in terms of how much money we send back home, is it the bank's uh, strategy also to tap into diaspora? Uh, yes, we already have a diaspora offering, actually. and We touch the, the key markets, work with partners across those key markets that we tend to have diaspora concentrations. We work on technology platforms that allow particularly remittances to work back here. We want to use our digital platforms, obviously, to allow them to transact locally. You know, you may be living in Sweden, but you're still keen on building that 
that home, for example. So a, a solution that helps you do that is, is, is something that you're going to be looking for. People that you want to engage with here, you may be paying school fees, uh, living expenses and so on. And you want to do that through the IM platform. So we look at the partnerships that are going to help uh, facilitate that and make it as seamless as possible. So maybe a, fi- a few final questions for me so that I can open up. And if you have any questions, you can maybe go to the pinned tweet on our wall and just maybe uh, write a question. Or you can also uh, just use the hashtag deep dive IM so that we can get the question. Also, if you want, you can also request to speak. I, I hope the name on your Twitter page should be some face that you can see so that we can also admit the people that we can see at the end of the day. So maybe a final question. How do you think about capital allocation at INM? Because I think when you go at least to, through some of the courses at the university, one of the things that they really emphasize is how to think about capital allocations in terms of dividends. Are you going to reinvest and are you going to keep how much are you going to keep? How much are you going to give away? How, what are your harder rates for investing in some of new, these new uh, places and banks? How, how long will you take to get the money back you put into an investment? As a CEO, what's your thinking around this? And what, does the, what do you bring to the bank as a whole in terms of capital allocation strategy? Right. So obviously the focus that the shareholders and, and the board obviously are going to have is on what kind of returns you get on, on the capital that you employ. So your decisions on how to use uh, that capital have to be informed by that. So what typically the shareholders will want to have is a hurdle rate, if you like, that, that uh, you must meet in use, utilizing their capital because you're putting their capital at risk. So what we do is, with that understanding of what that hard rate is, we then take all of our capital decisions through that filter. And we would look at the kind of expected rates of return we would have on any investments that we are making and see whether, if you pose them against that hard rate, they actually do create value, right? So because, as you know, Anybody can take their money and put it in treasury bills and and earn a return. So you have to be able to give them returns that are better than that when you're taking uh, risk with their money. So whether it is an investment in a new business that you're buying, or whether it is in a new product, or whether it is a capital investment that you're making in anything from systems to, to buildings and so on, you want to use that filter to say, are we we actually creating value, right? It it gets a lot more complex. You want to look at all the different components of capital utilization. And then, of course, there's the other uh, aspect. You remember you're running a bank, so capital adequacy is really critical. So we employ the ICAP process to really think about the capital that we have against the risks that we face and whether or not we have adequate capital to actually meet those risks. So that you don't have capital that is excess, right? We will set, for example, a buffer rate, a board buffer rate that says, you know, going out to raise new capital can be slow in our markets, right? What you want to do is carry an adequate enough buffer that if you get a shock, you can actually write that out as you make your capital renewal decisions. 
So against that, we then look at the growth patterns that we have. We plan out and see what, what our capital needs down the line. How do we actually feel that? What mix of capital do we have? And so on, on the one end, what kind of returns on capital? On the other end, exactly what kind of capital is needed in the business? Great. Uh, so and one observation that we made, especially in Q1 this year, was that a lot of banks are also shifting towards maybe investing more in government securities. I, I mean, I noted that there was an increase, I think, of around 105% in Q1, at least in your side, also in interest income from government securities. So is this like something that is deliberate from banks to kind of shift away from maybe risky sectors of the market? I know you also in- invested in real estate as a companies, what informs your thinking here in terms of investing in real estate and also investing in, in government securities? So the government securities are really just, if you look at it across the banking sector, your liquidity levels are at perhaps some of the highest levels that you've seen historically, right? At levels of 50, 60% for some banks, right? What that tells you is that um, you are generating lots of deposits, savings and, and, and all from the public. But in terms of being able to deploy it effectively, that is a bit constrained, right? Typically, nobody just wants to invest in, in government securities. They are sort of your, they sort of have two uses. It, it packs your excess liquidity, but it also you also know that you need a certain liquidity level, right? So if you think back to the last few years, you've hardly had credit to private sector growth at levels higher than, say, 7 8%, right? And that means that the conditions are not quite as conducive for lending as, as banks overall would like. And uh, that, I think, is also partly informed by the levels of NPAs that you have in the market. We are talking about non-performing loans at levels of about 14%, 13 to 14%, which means that banks will will have to be cautious about how they actually deploy their funds towards lending opportunities because you still have to make sure that you give back returns to your shareholders and at the same time make sure that you have the liquidity to be able to return funds to depositors when they need it. So... That, I think, is the general driver for the, for the higher deployment you're seeing of liquidity into government securities. And I'm sure that while the conditions to change, you know, as opportunities to lend in what you'd call your private sector, that would actually be embraced very quickly by banks. Certainly we would. I bet that this is a trend you're more likely to see going forward in terms of banks maybe sticking to government securities. It's safer, it's around 10 to getting above 10% returns on your investment and all. So is this something that you would expect to continue? And then also in the same breath, you could also comment about, I'm sure you have a very good feel of how the credit and, uh, market and, and, and the liquidity risks around uh, the various banks around the country is going through. Like, what's your feel around the economy? Do we, would you expect a recovery this year, or is that a bit too much of an optimistic tone to adopt? Well, I think the shock that uh, we went through in, with COVID-19 was unprecedented, right? And uh, I think the, the stats that we are seeing from the government uh, on how the economy performed in, in 2020 tell that tale. Now, off the back of that, you expect uh, a recovery. And I think 
the government, uh, here I'm talking about all the organs, including the central bank, have been taking concerted steps to cushion the economy from the shocks that we saw from the pandemic. Particularly in the banking sector, there's been uh, a, a lot of support that came in from a, a prudential perspective. Shall we say, actually, uh, the correct word is a statutory perspective, to say here are the, the reliefs that you can get from a classification perspective so that you can support your customers. And to that end, you saw about 54% of the loan book in the, for banks in the country was, um, was restructured. And that was, was significant in helping to cushion businesses so that they can actually manage to you know, recover down the line. So are we going to see a recovery? I think you're going to see ongoing attempts to support a recovery through both fiscal and monetary policy measures. Would we want to see lower interest rates on the government security and government debt? Certainly, I think there's a bit of room there because um, inflation is well contained, as you have seen repeatedly from all the, the different MPC sessions. Can it come down given the level of, of debt that we have? We, there may be some room to do so, but we'll wait to see what the policymakers actually put out. Great. I haven't seen more questions. So I think I'll keep asking you the questions. I think we have uh, maybe 20 more minutes to go. Uh, so if uh, anyone has questions, you can send DM us and also type them below our pinned tweet. So I think one question that I wanted to ask going forward would be, especially you've got a loan from the IFC, I think that's around 50 million for onward lending usually. What are usually like the benefits of maybe land borrowing from these multilateral lenders as opposed to maybe floating a bond or maybe issuing rights bonuses, rights, say rights issues to raise money at the end of the day? So what informs maybe getting money from these kind of institutions at the end of the day and what types of conditions do they come with? So like I mentioned earlier, we have partnerships with development finance institutions that go way back. In fact, with the IFC, a lot, obviously, the information even came out before. <laughs> they, they had to disclose it well before even uh, everything was concluded. But the intention, of course, is to telegraph what uh, kind of projects they're working on. So indeed, we are taking on $50 million of uh, funding from the IFC. It's a tier two capital, so it has both a benefit of giving us funding in foreign currency in U.S. dollars, as well as giving us capital support. Why would we prefer that route to perhaps using debt insurance through the capital markets? I think uh, the principal driver is the speed with which you can do it, and uh, obviously bilateral financiers tend to be a lot faster. I guess any company, if you want to raise capital, you have to think about, should I do it through a listing or should I do it through going to talk to my bank? Invariably, talking to your bank is a lot faster. Now, the other thing is, of course, that it, is, it tends to be, to be targeted. From their perspective, it tends to be targeted. We have plans to get further support into our MSME space and SME space so it aligns in terms of their development mandate as, as well. There is an opportunity, I think, for our debt capital markets to actually improve in terms of the speed to, uh, to market. And maybe uh, a good case in point is the eurobond that, that we are issuing as, as a country. 
right? From, you know, kickoff to issuance will probably take less than a month. If we were to do the same thing uh, as an entity issuing on our local capital markets, that might take you quite a while. So we need to streamline all of this. And I know it's a developmental thing that is going to come. We have used the debt capital markets before. We've issued bonds before. I think we also cannot gainsay the shock that came in back in 2016 with some of the issuances at the time that then ran into a bit of trouble with the capital markets. And that knocks confidence by investors and you don't want to struggle to access markets when people have some some of those residual issues still in their minds. So maybe sticking to the capital markets, one of the things that is impressive about the investor relations team that you have is that you have a calendar and you send out pretty much in advance to tell people when you're having your earnings calls and all. So I mean, those are small things that a lot of maybe companies that are listed don't do often. And so I think those are like small pain points which I've seen, which can help us uh, maybe make our markets a bit more efficient. So are there other things that you've noted, maybe also in addition to the speed of execution, maybe of approving bonds, to go to the market? Are there other things that you've noticed that can help our capital markets maybe be better as we go forward and try maybe to compete with capital uh, that is maybe going to places like South Africa and Nigeria? So yes, indeed, some of those things that in actual, actual issuers do to help people understand their businesses are really important, which is why uh, from an investor relations perspective, we want to have these discussions. We need to explain to our investors uh, what we actually do. So even a call like this really helps people unpack what uh, this business is doing. But you need, I think from a, a capital markets perspective, the, the challenge is to get issuers to trust. They're, they're committing to, to raise capital through the, the markets is going to be an, a, a process that's not onerous that's going to be uh, speedy, that is going to give them uh, the right kind of value discovery, right? That is going to have depth, that allows people to actually feel like and come again and again to, to raise money off these capital markets. I think the, the, the areas that they can uh, obviously focus on are also investor education, right? So that people see the capital markets as places where they can uh, actually access opportunities for enhancing their wealth. They need to understand how they actually work so that you don't get panic whenever some situations may develop. They need to make it easier to... And the obviously, the other bit is to strengthen issuers' corporate governance uh, standards and enforce them without fear or favor, because uh, that's really critical to enhancing trust in the issuers at these capital markets. I haven't seen any questions for you. It seems you either have done a very good job in explaining I&M Bank. I think one final question maybe I would have would be, what's the, I think one of my favorite interviewers always ask this question is, what's the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you, maybe in your career or in your personal life? Mm. Interesting one. So I think it is actually to trust me. And when I was much younger, you know, I'll tell you when I was trading as a dealer, just starting out in Stanbeck, in markets that were still coming to terms with the risks that they have to face, the just the opportunity to then be involved in developing and trading in those markets 
is not something that you typically leave down to somebody who's less than 25 years old. And giving somebody the opportunity then to to operate in those markets, help shape the markets and so on, was actually a, a very important learning experience for me early on. Okay, I received two questions. One is, if you are not at IMA, where would you be in the banking? All right, so another question is about the mix between retail and uh, corporate clients. Where is your focus and how did that pan out in the pandemic? We have an, an interesting mix in our balance sheet. So predominantly our loan book is uh, corporate. So 75% of our book is corporate. But the funding side tends to come from our retail and business banking uh, markets predominantly. So how did that fare then in the pandemic? We've got strong corporate clients and the focus that we have in credit approach ensures that people are are really thinking about the capital that they actually employ in their businesses to withstand shocks like this. So I talked earlier about 54% of the loan book in the industry being restructured due to COVID. We, by comparison, had about 17% of our loan book being restructured and all of it is actually doing okay. Hey, I have a few questions, two questions from Ronak. One is, What's your, what steps are you taking to increase the free float and liquidity of your bank's shares? It seems you have a lot of people want them and they can't get them. Thanks for that question. Actually, you will have seen in uh, the past uh, couple of years, we've actually done bonus shares that have then progressively increased the amount of shares that are actually available uh, in the market. That should make it, number one, more affordable for, for any investors. And we obviously also recognize that we need to do more to talk about our counter, right? What do we actually do as a business and so on, so to generate that interest that people should have in, in our counter. So we trust that, that is helping. And the other thing that, of course, we can do is just continue to do well. I think another question was actually about the bonus issue and what you're thinking around it was, uh, so I guess it's more to increase the liquidity. Yes, exactly. I think Ronak also asks, like, why do you view the lending environment as unfavorable, given that Kenya's GDP has been amongst the highest in South Sub-Saharan Africa? And despite the corporates, Kenyan banks are amongst the highest performers in the frontier universe. Uh, well, so even with that growth that we've been seeing in GDP over the past uh, few years, if you think back to when you actually had credit to the private sector actually above, as I say, 10%, you'd have to go back quite a while. And then you, so that's one, you're taking that global appetite that's been created. But then secondly, there is also the various sectors that are actually available for you to get into and what economic activity do you actually see. So if you think then to your sectors that have been troubled by NPLs, they tend to be around some of the large contributors to GDP. So your real estate, your... Uh, manufacturing, your trading, have all seen some significant quality deterioration over the past few years. So people then tend to be a lot more cautious in getting into that space. Certainly, you then want to move up the scale in terms of quality, and that then limits the amount of credit expansion that you see. This is a question from GBS Africa. I'm not so sure to the extent to which you can comment on government borrowing levels, uh, which is just above 60% of GDP. Is that something you 
would you want to comment about? Well, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a difficult question because at the end of the day, you have different levels of borrowing to GDP across uh, the spectrum of countries. Some go all the way to 200%, right? So do we have a particularly unique situation in Kenya? The fact that we can actually attract borrowing as a government is actually a big plus. Right. And what one always wants to look to is how is that actually then being managed effectively. Right. Uh, There's always appetite for Kenya paper, it seems. There's always going to be interest in how well that funding is actually being deployed. Right. Our final question, I think someone is asking about thinking in one of the earlier podcasts, or at least one of the sessions that I've attended and you spoke and you talk about also using information that you have, especially about clients and maybe layering it with uh, data analytics and trying to make uh, informed decisions about which kind of products you can give to clients on that. So are you, what's your thinking around monetizing the data that you have uh, access to about clients and client transactions? Well, I think and, and this can certainly be our parting question, right? And parting comment. Yes. Well, you make money from information and the acquisition of data, the organization of data to, to get meaningful insights is what gives you the opportunity to actually make money for whatever business you are in. As a bank, we obviously have access to customer data that we collect. There will be other data sets that are available externally, but we can only access with the permission of, of clients, of course. But what then the analytics uh, capability that we build and have allows us to do is to tease out insights that help us to really make informed decisions about our customers, whether it is on whether to lend to them and how much to lend to them, or whether it is on what other products that they may actually need or what we may design. That is really critical. So given the proliferation of data because of, obviously, the uh, advances that we have seen in data storage technology, in the speed of processing, and so on, it, it means that we have to get really good at managing data and getting the insights that we need to be able to, to make those informed decisions. All right. Thank you so much, Kihara, for coming by today. Uh, thank you so much for helping us understand that I&M Bank. So now we know a little bit more uh, beyond just the building that we see at the city center. And we hopefully will uh, be having you again in the future so that you can keep explaining to us what the bank does. And so I would say thank you very much. Thank you very much, Eric. And um, a special mention to, to Rakesh, who... Uh, ensured that we could get this conversation going. It has been a pleasure speaking with you and thank you very much.